we're going to be in here continuing on in a sermon series called David, the Heart of the King. And we're going to be studying, guess who? David. You guessed it. It was an educated guess. But before we get to that, I want to mention just one kind of housekeeping thing, and that is uh, I'm going to be on sabbatical for the next eight weeks. I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be preaching. I'm not going to be here on Sundays. I'm not going to be checking my emails. I, I'm, not, I'm going to be kind of hard to find for the next few weeks, and uh, I will return in the middle of July, and I'm looking forward to that time away, and I'm also looking to that time of return. Uh, this is mentioned, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and there's a little write-up about it in the newsletter. I also sent out an email to kind of explaining what this sabbatical is and why I'm taking it. But in case you didn't get that, or in case this is news to you, I just kind of want to explain that this is a time of rest. This is where I'm supposed to be not in charge of things, not thinking whether or not this is true, that the, you know, the, the fate of this congregation rests on my shoulders. You can laugh at that, because that's, that's not true at all. Uh, but sometimes in positions of leadership, you can take on that attitude. So this is the leader saying, Jacob, don't be responsible for things. Spend time with your family. Spend time with the Lord. Work on your prayer life, and we're going to take care of you. And I want to say thank you to this congregation for doing that. There's been some questions. A lot of people have said, okay, we don't really know what that means. Uh, we're a little bit concerned. So I wanted to address a couple things. One, uh, some people have asked and wondered, does this mean that you're going to be interviewing at other churches? Are you going to be uh, updating your resume and job hunting? Is this, are you leaving because you're not happy? And the answer is no, absolutely not. That sounds like way too much work for me uh, <laughs> to be doing when I'm on sabbatical. But I'm also not interested in doing that because we love this congregation. So I wanted to make that very, very clear. I plan on coming back, so don't clear out my office and don't pretend like I'm not coming back because I, I intend to come back. And I'm looking forward to being refreshed after this time of rest, coming back better than ever and continuing to serve here. We've been at this congregation for almost 10 years now. And uh, that says something about you guys. And oh yeah, you can clap for 10 years. You can clap for things. Uh, this is our home and we love you guys and you've taken really good care of us. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this, this time of being away. Time of rest, people said, what are you going to do on your sabbatical? Part of the answer to that is I don't know entirely. Uh, I know some things I'm not going to do that I've mentioned already, but uh, I plan on being intentional about uh, reading some books that I think will be good for my soul. I'm going to be uh, spending more extended times of prayer, so I'll be praying for you guys as well. I'm going to go and visit with a Christian counselor and just sort of sort through you know, all the stuff that, that that's good for, uh, emotions and feelings and that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to some, some healthy rhythms and some practices. My family is also going to be traveling a little bit. We're going up north to see Tony and Sheila and uh, some other members of the family. We might take a trip to Legoland. Anyway, so we're, we're still figuring this out. Um, but I just wanted to say that's what the sabbatical is about. That's where I'll be in case you're like, hey, where's that guy and his family? Um, yeah, so thank you again for that. I am excited for you because for the next four weeks, Justin Garza is going to be standing here preaching the word in the, the normal sermon slot on Sunday mornings, and he's already been working on those lessons, and he's shared with me a little bit about what he's going to say, and you guys are stoked. You are going to be blessed by those messages. We also have some guest speakers. Some you'll recognize. Some will be some new faces, but it's going to be a good eight weeks for you guys uh, and for, for me, guys, uh, and my family, so... That's, that's the sabbatical thing. If you have any questions about it, or if you're still like, I don't know, or you want to talk to me about it, I am available uh, until about 5 o'clock today, and then uh, we, we won't hear from you for a while. 
Um, but yeah, come and talk to me. Uh, now back to David, the heart of the king. This is actually the last sermon in this series. We've been studying through the life of David, and I scheduled this text for this week, and as I got to it this week to kind of hash it out, I thought, I don't want to preach this at all. I wish I hadn't scheduled this. I was this close to changing the text and just preaching out of the prodigal son or something feel good like that. Because this week, the text that I scheduled is the story of David and his son Absalom. And if you know this story, it is heartbreaking. There are so many problems. There's so much sin in this story, so many missteps, so many examples of what not to do. I was like, ah, oh, I don't want that to be my last sermon before the sabbatical. It's like a rainy Sunday morning. I don't, oh, we don't want to have to wade through this. But I decided to go with it anyway. It's important for us to deal with problematic texts, difficult texts. Too often, preachers can cherry-pick the fun stuff in Scripture, uh, and I don't think that's responsible use of Scripture. So I think that even this text, with all of its problems, with all of its heartache, has something for us to hear today. And so here comes the story of David and Absalom. We saw last week how David's sins against Bathsheba and Uriah had consequences. And Nathan the prophet came and said, there's going to be consequences for these sins. God's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. There's forgiveness. But as with any sin, there's consequences. Um, and we saw that God said he was going to bring calamity on David's house. This week, in the story of David and Absalom, we're going to see just how corrosive sin can be. Uh, so let's begin with the story. I am actually going to do a lot of paraphrasing. Another reason I thought about changing this text is because the story is so long. It takes up seven-plus chapters in uh, the book of 2 Samuel, and I'm like, that's a lot of text to have to wade through. So I'm going to be doing a lot of summarizing this morning, and then maybe just zero in on one particular passage that's right in the middle there. Um, David has a son named Amnon. There's a lot of A names in 1 and 2 Samuel. They're hard to kind of sort through. But David has a son named Amnon, and he sees a beautiful woman, and he wants to be with her. So he calls her to his bed, and he forces himself on her. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, didn't we hear that story last week? Wasn't that, isn't that exactly what David did? The answer is yes. But now we're talking about somebody else doing something very similar. Amnon forces himself on this woman. And surprisingly for us, the shameful part of this story, at least as far as the text is concerned, is not the fact that the woman that he slept with was his sister. It's the fact that he sleeps with her and then casts her aside. This was very disgraceful in their culture. She begs him after he does this horrible thing to her, we need to get married. We need to make this right. There's only one way to redeem this in any way, and that is for us to be married. But as quickly as he loved her, we could say lusted, for her, he throws her out. He's disgusted by her now for some reason. And he throws her away. And she's broken. And it's a disgrace to their family. And her brother, Absalom, who's also Amnon's brother, these are all David's kids. The woman is Tamar. The man who raped her is Amnon. And then the other brother is Absalom. Okay, Got to sort through a lot of characters here. Absalom finds out about this, and he is livid. Absalom is boiling with anger after he finds out that Amnon had done this horrible thing. But he doesn't kill him. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't get in his face. He doesn't address the issue. Instead, he waits, and he stews, and he broods, and he hates Amnon. And he fosters 
and he harbors this hate in his heart until finally he lures Amnon out of the city and he has him brutally executed. And the text here in 2 Samuel 13 says that Absalom worked on this plot for two years. Two years of hating, planning, and just waiting for that perfect moment to exact his revenge. What's interesting about this text, as you'll see throughout this message this morning, is that there's a lot of time kept. Sometimes in scripture you're not sure of the chronology, you're not sure how long it is from one event to another, but here it kind of keeps track for us. There's a lot of years that are mentioned. So I want you guys to kind of keep a running count this morning. This, we'll start with two years. So what's zero plus two? Go. Yes, you're on it. I think you're going to be okay. Uh, he waits and he plans and he just he deals with his hate. He doesn't resolve the issue in a healthy way, but then he finally murders, executes Amnon. He's daydreaming. He's planning the revenge. And why don't you just, just think for a moment about what that does to your soul. Just holding on to this. I'm going to do something, but not yet. I'm going to plan it. I'm going to just wait till it's right. Oh, that's going to eat you from the inside out. Remember the corrosiveness of sin. Psalm 36, verse 4, talks about the ways of an evil person. And one thing it mentions is, even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course, and they do not reject what is wrong. Here it talks about how they stay up late at night thinking about how they're going to carry out their evil plans. It says they commit themselves to a sinful path. This is exactly what Absalom does here in these two years. He is dead set on revenge. All he cares about at this point is revenge. But revenge is a tricky thing. Revenge in our culture today is glamorized. Have you noticed this? Movie after movie, story after story, they carry us on this journey of quietly biding your time, gathering your resources until the perfect time to unleash your wrath on somebody. And in these movies, they make it a very particular point to show you that this person's deserving. Oh man, this person's pure evil. They have what's coming to them. You can't write a revenge story unless the audience is on board with you. And it really makes violence and revenge look like something that is cathartic, something that is just, something that ought to be done. By the end of these movies, you're like, yes, that revenge had to happen, and we all feel good. But the truth is that sin gives birth to more sin. And Absalom satisfying his bloodlust against Amnon only makes things worse. So the story continues. After Absalom kills his brother, he has to flee. And he, he leaves Jerusalem. He's on the run. David, meanwhile, King David, the father of both Amnon, who was murdered, and Absalom, who was the murderer, and Tamar, the woman who was violated, David mourns. He is sad because of Amnon. He's weeping for the loss of his son, but he's also mourning for the loss of his other son, Am, uh, Absalom, who is banished now, and he can't return. And maybe David thought about seeing him. Maybe David thought about talking to him or sending him a message, but that's not what happens. David just can't at this point. And this goes on, the distance between Absalom and David goes on for three years. Three years. So what's our count? Five. Okay, we got five years of distance of uh, harboring hate and sin and lack of reconciliation. So during this time, we get this woman, this mysterious unnamed woman in 2 Samuel 14, and she comes to David and she's got a message for him. And we find out in the text that she was sent to David by Joab, one of David's commanders and, and close friends. 
he says, here's what you should go. Go to David and give him this message because Joab's concerned about the relationship between David and Absalom. And it's interesting, when you read this, it's a message that's sort of reminiscent of what Nathan the prophet said to David after he sinned with Bathsheba. You remember he told him this story about the man who took the other man's precious lamb and, and killed it. And David's like, that's despicable. That man should pay. And then David pointed, or Nathan pointed at David and said, what? You are the man. This story is about you. Well, this woman does the same thing for David. She comes and she tells him this story. She says, I'm a widow and I have two sons. My two sons got into a fight. One son killed the other son. So one of my sons is gone. The other son is on the run because the whole village wants to capture him and punish him by death, which would be the right thing to do. But if that happens, I'm a widow. I don't have any resources. I'd be all on my own. Plus, I love my son. I just lost one of my sons. I don't want to lose the other one. David hears this story and he says, ah, oh, that is hard. Okay, I promise you, I will show mercy to this murdering son and they won't harm him. So you just tell me what I need to do and I'll take care of this for you. And the woman, much like Nathan the prophet, says, hmm, isn't it interesting that you want to show mercy in this situation? But when the exact same situation is happening in your very own family, you won't show mercy. Why is it that you won't see your son Absalom? And just like with the story of Nathan the prophet, David doesn't see it coming. If you want to teach David a lesson, it seems like you have to disguise it. It's like putting the, the dog pill in the peanut butter and then feeding it to him. And then you go, oh, okay, here it is after all. So the message gets through. And the verse that I wanted to focus in on, I put it on the screen for you too. She says something to David as she's telling him the story and making this point. She says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. In a very clever, skillful, and convincing way, she makes this case for ending the cycle of vengeance, ending the cycle of violence in David's life. She's a pretty respectful, I like this woman. Way to go, wise woman. If she's got more things to say, I'm listening. And David hears her out and he says, okay, all right, I'll allow Absalom, the son that he probably still loves, probably is missing, he allows him to come back to the city. But that doesn't mean that they're reconciled. Absalom comes back to the city, but David still won't face him. David won't let him come to the palace. David won't share a meal with him. David won't have a conversation with him. David won't send a message to him. Jerusalem is not a very big city. They're in the same place. David's probably going out of his way to avoid Absalom. And Absalom notices this. Absalom probably, all he wants in the world is to be reunited with his father. He wants to talk things out, talk about what he's done, talk about their relationship, to make things right. Dad, can't we just get together? Can't we just hug it out? Please, Dad? And David says, no. He still can't do it. He won't see him. So they're in the same city, but they won't see each other, and this goes on for two years. So what's our count at now? Seven years. And Absalom, finally, after two years, he can't take it anymore, and he throws a little tantrum. He's next door neighbors with Joab, this commander of David, and he sets his field on fire. And Joab comes up to Absalom and he's like, hey man, what's the deal? Uh, I like it when my fields are not on fire. What are you trying to do here? And Absalom says, I want to talk to David. I want to see my father. You can get a message to him. Will you tell him I want to see him? Joab finally does. David, uh, Absalom goes to David and finally, after all this time, 
Father and Son are together in the same place. Absalom kneels down before David. He bows his head before him, his father, his king, and David kisses his head. So they're back together. Seems like reconciliation has happened, right? That's at least what the picture tells. But it seems like it's a little, it's too little, too late. It's more of a perfunctory reconciliation. It's like when your kids are are fighting with each other and you're ready for them to be reunited and you say, all right, stop this fighting. Shake hands. They don't want to, but they do. Hug it out. They hug each other. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But they're not reconciled. Things aren't better between them. And we know this because in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 15, the heading that's in my Bible says Absalom's conspiracy. Forgiveness has not happened. Reconciliation has not happened. This is what Absalom decides to do. We know from previous details in the story that Absalom is cunning. He's a thinker. He's a planner. And so, uh, here's what he does. He sits outside the city gate, and when a traveler comes from another part of Israel, comes to see the king or bring a complaint or a suggestion, he intercepts the person. He says, oh, hey, what are you doing here? He says, oh, I'm going to go and see the king. Absalom says, oh, you know what? The king's not seeing people at this time. The king doesn't want to hear what you have to say. But I would listen. I'm actually a really good listener. If only there were someone ruling in Israel who was a good listener, who cared about what people had to say. Absalom is very charming. Absalom is very persuasive. The text tells us that Absalom has nice hair. I personally think that you can't trust people who have nice hair. That's just my personal opinion. But people like the things that old good hair Absalom was telling them. They thought maybe he could be a good king. He started gaining a following. Absalom didn't just do this for a day. He didn't just spend his week off doing this. He sat outside the city gate and he undermined his father. He undermined King David for four years. Four years. What's the count at? Eleven years. Eleven years of distance between David and Absalom. Forgot to carry the zero. (laughs) And so what happens is when the time is right, Absalom and his men storm the castle. They take over. They say, I'm going to be, or Absalom's going to be the ruler of Israel now. And just like the Lord had predicted back in chapter 12, Absalom goes up on the roof and he sleeps with King David's concubines in full view of everyone. David has a hit out on him. He's running for his life again, like he was back at the beginning of the story when he was dealing with crazy King Saul. David has to flee, and he's on the run. He's out there by himself. He's got some men with him, but he's, he's had to leave the city. And Absalom, for a little while, is the ruler. So David's soldiers now are pitted against Absalom's soldiers, and as David sends his soldiers out to fight them, he knows that if they find Absalom, they're going to kill him. And he says, be gentle with my son Absalom. Do not kill him. This is still his son after all. He's done some horrible things. There's 11 years of distance between them, but still he says, do not harm the young man. David still loves his son. And if you didn't listen to me before, maybe you'll listen now. Absalom's fancy pants hair gets him in trouble. 
He's out riding on his mule. They're pursuing him, and his hair gets caught up in a tree, like in these branches of a tree. The mule takes off, and he's just hanging there by his hair. That's what happens. Justin, come on. Heed my wise words. Be careful. So he's hanging there, and Joab and some of the other soldiers of David, they find him, and Joab was there. Joab heard that David said, don't harm him. And they remind him, we're not going to kill this guy. You can't harm him. This is the king's son. Joab says, yeah, but you know, maybe he thought about how he set his field on fire. Maybe he's got his own plans. Joab takes three javelins and he stabs Absalom in the heart. And then the rest of his men flash away at him and he dies this brutal death. David finds out about it. David mourns for the loss of his son. Absalom is dead. And that's the story that I didn't want to preach this morning. That's the text that I wanted to skip over. It's hard to find redemption in these verses. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But, according to this wise woman, according to our scriptures, that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. So what went wrong? That's not what happened in this story. The count, two years, three years, two more years, four years. We're waiting for this reconciliation. We're waiting for the person who's banished to not be banished anymore, but that doesn't happen. And there's so much sin in this story. David sinned. Amnon sinned. Absalom sinned. David sinned some more. Absalom sinned again. Joab sins, and on and on and on and on. The ending that we want for this story is one where David and Absalom are reunited. Where Absalom is the the beloved son. Where David takes him under his wing and shows him what it means to be faithful to God. To be a ruler of the kingdom of Israel. But they never really made it work out. This is what God desires. Then why does this happen? Why did this happen in this story and why does this happen in our lives? This is what's frustrating about this text is that we're supposed to hear tales of reconciliation. We're supposed to see things working out well in the end, but David and Absalom do not get there. And as we think of all the wasted time, it would be great if that was redemptive. That would be a powerful story for them to come back and say, I wasn't talking to my dad for three years. I wouldn't see him because I was so mad or I had so much rage against my brother. What we want to hear is, but then we worked it out and now we're closer than ever and God had a plan all along and things were great. But we don't get that satisfaction in this story. And think about our own lives. How much time do we waste not being reconciled to one another, not working out our differences, not being reconciled to God, staying banished because we're concerned about what our Father the King is going to say when and if we return? We want to avoid this. This is like a don't let this happen to you story. And the question that we come to this text with, or at least that I come to this text with, is how do we do that? How do we go from hurt and sin to reconciliation and love? And that that would be a formula that I would love to give you today, but I don't know. I think we get some details from God. We get some advice from Scripture. And it's not things that we haven't thought of before. It's things we could have come up with on our own. But I don't have the exact answer. But I think some of the ingredients are 
communication. Don't wait until someone has to set your field on fire to get your attention or to sit down and have a conversation with you. Be willing to listen. Be willing to share what's actually going on in your life. Communication's important. Forgiveness, yeah, okay, we all know that one, but it's easier said than done, right? But forgiveness is part of that. Humility, how many times have we refused to receive someone, refused to forgive someone, refused to communicate with someone because we're just holding on to our hurt or our pride or our, it has to be done this way, they have to say this, this, and this before I'll be willing to forgive them. We need to be humble. We need to have a wide perspective, I think, that considers the fact that we don't have our stuff together in a conflict with somebody. Maybe we weren't 100% in the right and they were 100% in the wrong. Maybe there are things that we did we could have done differently along the way. I think another ingredient is practice. The more that you do forgive, the more that you do humble yourself, the easier it gets, rather than just this is the way it's got to be. I'm going to be in control of every situation. And then wisdom, I mean, maybe. These are, I mean, you can't argue with these things. These are all scriptural things that we're like, yeah, yeah. If we do all those things, then, then maybe we'll get to reconciliation and we won't have this hurt. We won't hold on to our pain. I don't know. I don't think that's the answer. I wish there was an easy answer, but I don't think there is. I got a cup of water here. Like a cup of water that's spilled on the ground, so we all must die. That seems pretty final, right? Take this cup of water. I'm going to ask this side of the room, spill it on the ground. Pick it up for me, Joe. Can you put my water back in my cup? Because something happened. Something changed. My life is different now. I kind of want things to be back the way that they were. I kind of want things to be better. Can you guys help me? Are you able to take this water up off the carpet and put it back in my cup so that I can drink it? <laughs> Wes has got some <laughs> solutions. It seems pretty hopeless. With all of our efforts, I don't think that we could get back to where we were. But, as I think about God, as I think about my own limitations, I don't think God is limited in a lot of the ways that I am limited. As I think about the stories that I've heard from Scripture, it seems like whenever water was a problem and God was involved, it didn't stay a problem. Not enough water, not a problem for God. Too much water in the way, not a problem for God. This water doesn't taste enough like wedding wine. That's not a problem for God either. God seems to be active in places where we are inactive. He seems to be capable in areas where we are not. Maybe it's a reminder this morning that nothing is impossible for God. Water that's spilled to the ground can't be recovered, so we all must die. I also seem to remember a story in Scripture about death not being a very big obstacle for God. It's not as final as we all are scared that it is. This is our hope in Christ, is that the tomb was empty and that Jesus died. He wasn't just sleeping. He wasn't just unconscious for a while. He was dead. It was confirmed, but that wasn't such a problem. He walked right out of the tomb. I like to think he was whistling when he did it. No problem. I'm going to go hang out. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go visit. I'm going to go teach. I'm going to keep doing the stuff that I was doing while I was alive by the power and by the hand of God. 
We believe that even when we run out of the ability to love and forgive, that God is still at work. And he devises ways for a banished person to not remain banished from him. This is the gospel message. The banishment is not final. The distance between us and God and the distance we create between one another is not the end of the story through Jesus Christ. We've called this series, I've called this series, and you've gone along with it, The Heart of the King. And in case you haven't figured it out yet, the real king whose heart we are trying to learn and come to know is not King David, but it's King Jesus. Jesus is the embodied God whose very heart David was chasing after. It's important to learn things from David, but there's a limit. There's a point where he just can't anymore, like in this story with Absalom. And that's where God kicks in, takes over, and carries us the rest of the way. And what I want to encourage us to do as a church is to chase after God's heart with David. Let's not try to be all the best parts of the life of King David, but let's align the rhythms of our lives with the heartbeat of the one true king. Throughout this series, we've been giving you psalms to take home, words from David, prayers, and we want you to pray them. We want you to learn them. And the psalm that I want to leave you with this morning is Psalm 36. Uh, it's a good prayer. It's the one where we, it talks about the description of the evil person and how we, we don't want to be like that. But then there's redemption. There's, there's good words in there to read, to pray. I want you to continue this practice. Write down your prayers. Share them among your family members. Post them in the wall in the back there. Justin's going to continue this on in his sermon series, so you're going to be hearing more about the prayers of the week. But this morning, I don't want to end with Psalm 36, because you guys are all going to go read that on your own. This morning, I want to end with a better version of a story of a man and his sons. And I didn't make this up, and you might just recognize it. It goes like this. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. And then not long after that, uh, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And while he was there, he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to his fields to feed the pigs. And the son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran out to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's the better version of the story. 
It's a story about reconciliation. It's a story about us and our God. It's a story about the message of reconciliation that we need to demonstrate as a church. And it's the message of reconciliation that we have to offer a world that is wondering whether or not they can come home, whether or not their father loves them, whether or not there is forgiveness and hope and reconciliation and change. And the answer from us is yes. Yes, there is. And it's through Jesus Christ. That's the message that we have to bring. I pray that we live it out. I pray that we take it out. And I pray that we believe it ourselves. Let's stand together and let's worship our God.